Good morning, church. What a beautiful declaration. Christ is ours forevermore. Amen? All right, as you came in, you should have been able to grab a uh, Lord's Supper cup. If you were not able to do that, there are some uh, deacons that are ready to hand those out. So if you'll just raise your hand up if you snuck in without getting one, and uh, we'll make sure to get that for you. Some in the balcony there. Most of y'all can uh, pretty much pick up on things, right? If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those Acts chapter 20. Uh, We're continuing through our study in the book of Acts as we've been doing since January, and we've just now reached chapter 20, and so we are we're almost there, guys. We're almost there at, at the rate we're going. We should be ending Acts in time for Christmas. So that'll be great. Uh, but if you, have a, if you need a Bible, there should be a black hardback ESV somewhere near you in the pew. And if uh, you just like that Bible, that's our gift to you. Go ahead and take it. So um, we, uh, we began Acts all the way back in January with the purpose of rediscovering and realigning ourselves with the biblical call to be a church. And this came after a year of social distancing, online services, quarantines, and uh, we wanted to reacquaint ourselves with what it means to be a biblical, Christ-centered church. So this morning we're going to talk about the church and Christ-centered corporate worship. We hear different things in our terminology. If someone that you don't know come up to you and ask you, hey, what is church? There's a lot of ways that we can respond to that question. And there's a lot of ways we do respond. We say, uh, you know, I I go to church, I went to church. We can point people to a building. We can point people to a service. We can point people to, uh, you know, a religious routine. There's different ways that we do that. And and you'll hear it when we say things like, you know what, church was good today. Or, man, church was so boring today. Yeah, some of y'all, y'all say that, I know. Sometimes we say, man, that church service was long today. Some of you say... I didn't make it to church today. Uh, you know, we're not going to make it to church today. And, and sometimes we say, you know, I don't really need to go to church today. And as we say things like that, it gives us the idea that a lot of times in our, in our culture and in our understanding of church, we have made church a thing that you do rather than a people that you are. And without even realizing it, that's how we begin to view church. It was Charles Spurgeon who said this, if you have to give a carnival to get people to come to church, then you'll have to keep giving carnivals to keep them coming back. He went on to say, a time will come when instead of shepherds feeding the sheep, the church will have clowns entertaining the goats. The fact is that many times we view church as a thing that we do. And a lot of times we say, you know what, that was boring. I didn't like the songs today. I didn't like that. I like this, but I don't like this. And we begin to look at church as an event rather than a people that we are. In the book that I've been reading uh, called Corporate Worship by Nine Marks, Jonathan Lehman has this quote. I want you to see this on the screen. A church is actually a gathering and a fellowship of the family of God, the body of Christ and the temple of the Spirit. So if we continue to mindlessly treat our churches as little more than clubs, buildings, or performances, we'll miss the truckload of support and blessing that God means to park in our driveways. What is a church? The Bible uses all kinds of metaphors to answer the question. The family and household of God, the body of Christ, the temple of the Spirit, the pillar and foundation of truth, the bride of Christ, Christ, flock, and more. Each one of those metaphors tells us something wonderful about your church and ours. 
We need all those people, all those metaphors, because there is no other organization, body, or people like the church. And then he says this, and this is bigger. I want you to see it even bigger. What is, it, what is the church? It's a group of people who know they've been loved by Christ and have begun to love one another like that. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful thought about the church. The church today, as we gather together in corporate worship that is Christ-centered, we're going to talk about the biblical model of church. And Galatians 4, 4 through 7 says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we, you see corporate language there, might receive adoption as sons. And because you, singular there, are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What a beautiful picture as you think about the adoption that has taken place as we gather together that we are adopted into the family of God. And just, just so you get a picture of that, these are a few of the families in our church who have gone through the path of adoption and brought children into their homes. And when you see these pictures, you see full family love. You are a son. You are a daughter. You are brought in. You are family. You are connected in a deep, deep way. You see these families, and this is, this is a beautiful picture, but do you see church this way? That you were brought in here as a corporate body of believers, as a family with one another. That you are sons and you are daughters of the Most High King who adopted you, who brought you into the house, brought you into his fold, brought you into his flock, brought you into his family, who loves and cares for you. What a beautiful picture of adoption. And we know that adoption into the family of God was costly. Adoption is costly. Galatians 4, 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. The chapter previous to that, 3.13, Christ redeem us, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You think about the costly price it, it was to adopt us as sons and daughters. The cost was Jesus Christ's own life, that he was born under the law, that he took on flesh, that he was born in human form, that he then lived the perfect life under the law so that he could be the perfect sacrifice for the sins of his people so that we could be brought into the family. And if it wasn't for Jesus Christ, we would not be here because there is nothing we can do in the law that can make us good enough to be brought in. It's a costly, costly gift that we are now family. We're brought in. Not only that, it's legally binding. I want you to understand this, verse 6 there. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you are an heir through God. If you are a son, if you are a daughter, you are no longer a slave. If you are in Christ, you are no longer a slave but a son. If we are in Christ, we are no longer separated from God, but we are sealed with his spirit. Now get this. The eternal son, 
the eternally begotten Son put on flesh, paid the penalty of sin on our behalf so that we could be brought into the family and so that you know that it's a legally binding agreement that cannot be broke. He gave his eternal spirit to indwell us so that we could be sealed for all eternity. Wow. God is working all of these things out, not because of anything that we've done, but because of who he is, his goodness and his glory and his mercy and his love being poured out on the family of God So as we gather together in corporate worship to exalt Christ, we do so as a family who looks to Christ and says, it's all because of you that we're here. Is that not exciting? Oh, man, I got excited. Because Ephesians 1, 3 says it this way. Blessed be the God, our Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which, is, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And in him we have obtained an inheritance. We are family. And we have a king who welcomes us in. And it's all because of the beloved Jesus Christ. What a beautiful thought. As you think about corporate worship, this is not something we do. This is not a place that we just attend. This is a body. This is where we come together and we recognize that because of Jesus Christ and his penalty, he paid the penalty of our sins so that we could be adopted in his foreknowledge. He predestined us. He brought us in, not because of our good works, not because we have anything to bring to the table except for sin. He welcomes us in. And as David Platt says it, do you realize the weight of the one who has invited you to follow him? He is worthy of more than church attendance and casual association. He is worthy of total abandonment and supreme adoration. So as we gather, we gather in complete abandonment and complete adoration of who he is and what he's done on our behalf. Isn't that beautiful? So as we get into Acts chapter 20, there's some big words, so don't make fun of me if I say them wrong. But I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump in, and we're going to see a Christ-centered church in the book of Acts. So let's pray. Gracious Father, we love you. We thank you so much for what you've done on our behalf, that we were hopeless and we were helpless, and you and your foreknowledge and your wisdom, you sent your Son your eternally begotten son to put on flesh under the law to pay the penalty for us so that we could have everlasting life, that we are no longer slaves to this world and to sin, but you have redeemed us and brought us into your household. What a beautiful, beautiful thought. We thank you. We worship you for that. In Christ's name, amen. All right, let's read verses 1 through 16. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed to Macedonia. And then he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement. He came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, 
he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus, and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them in Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on them on the next day. On the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where he was gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, he said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while, until daybreak, and so, de- and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail from Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite of Chios. The next day, he touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to, set, to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastened to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. First thing I want to see is there a Christ-centered church family gathers for encouraging. I've got verses 1 through 6, but I really want you to focus in on verses 1 through 3. Verses 1 through 3, pick up where we left off. There was an uproar in Ephesus, and Paul sent for the disciples there. And after encouraging them, he said farewell, and he traveled to Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and giving much encouragement, he came to Greece. And in Greece, he spent three months. And then when there was a plot against him by the Jews, he was about to set sail from Syria and decided to return to Macedonia. There's three verses there that cover over a three-month period of time. A lot happens in this three-month period of time. In fact, you can read about all the events that take place in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and 2 Corinthians 1 through 7. So we know that there's a lot of things that take place in three verses. And even in that time, he sat down while he's encouraging the churches and he wrote a letter to the Romans. The beautiful letter to the Romans where he writes in chapter 1 verses 11 and 12. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So as he's talking and going from church to church, he's going with the intention of gathering with believers to encourage them. And even when he writes to the Romans, he says, look, I want to come and see you face to face and gather with you so that there's a mutual encouraging that takes place. And he says this because it is Christ-centered worship, Christ-centered gatherings that benefits the body. It encourages the body. As we even talked, as I began, talking about the fact that we've been adopted into the family, I hope that you leave here more encouraged than you showed up today because of the thought that, man, I'm part of the family of God. 
And there are other brothers and sisters who I've seen face-to-face today who are going through the same trials that I'm going through, who are going through the same difficult world that I'm going through, and we encourage one another. And so he's saying, look, we need to encourage one another mutually. So how do you do that? Well, from these verses, we see this. We share with those in need. How do you intentionally gather for mutual encouraging? You share with those in need. Out of those verses that I mentioned, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 1 through 3, now concerning the collection of the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredited by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. What is Paul doing? He's going and he's encouraging the churches. And as he's encouraging the churches, he's asking them to give a gift for the church in Jerusalem who is going through a great famine at the time. So the churches that are gathering, the Gentile churches, are now going to take up a collection to help the churches that are suffering. So what do you do as you gather together for mutual encouraging? You share. You share with one another. You give to one another. You take care of one another. Listen, the body of Christ is not just a place that you come for an event once a week. It is a body and a family that you come to that you lean on when you are in desperate need. The church is to function in such a way that it shares with those who are in need. As he's given this gift to the church in Jerusalem, the the head of the church there in Jerusalem was James, the half-brother of Jesus. James says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He's saying, listen, you come to church and you know someone's in need. You know that there's a physical need that's going on in their life. And you're like, oh, God bless. Be good. Stay warm. Take care. Don't get COVID. You know, and you just see you later without ever doing anything to share with them, what good is that? Faith without works is dead. We are to be a church body that comes together, that shares with one another, that takes care of one another. And secondly, to serve those who struggle. How do we mutually encourage one another? We serve those who struggle. So how do we serve? Hebrews 3, 12 through 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Talking to the church, listen, be careful, brothers and sisters, that there's not any of you who are being being drawn away into sin, that are beginning to have an unbelieving heart. Any of you that are beginning to deconstruct your faith from your childhood, be careful of that, but exhort one another every day. The church comes together to serve one another who are struggling by exhorting them, by encouraging them, by coming alongside them, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So as we come together as the body of Christ, we exhort one another. And how do we do that? Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So we come together and we... We share the word of God with one another. We sing songs together. We teach one another. We admonish one another. This is why there's a corporate gathering that's Christ-centered because it has to be centered on Scripture. We do this because 
We, don't want, we want to bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. As we gather together as a Christ-centered church, we do so to bear one another's burdens. This is a beautiful imagery of, uh, that we can all relate to, is that where you just feel so weighed down by the world that you've been walking through for the last six days, that you come in here and you just, you just kind of overcome by it. And we see brothers and sisters who have been overcome by temptation and by, by, by things that are creeping up in their life. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, let me help bear that burden with you. Let me walk with you through this. Let me care for you. Let me serve you. The idea, though, is that you don't come in here looking for someone to bear your burden. You come in here looking to bear someone else's burden. And a lot of times we come to church self-centered. Well, I hope, it, I hope this works for me. I hope I get something out of it. I hope that so-and-so can you see that I'm in need. No, you come looking for someone else's need so that you can serve them in love. 1 Thessalonians 5, 11, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. How do you encourage and build up one another? Romans 14, 13, by not passing judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. There are too many times where we come to church and we pass judgment on other brothers and sisters because they don't meet the level of the law that we think they should meet. How do you carry someone's burden if you're judging that person? How do you walk with someone? How do you admonish someone? How do you encourage someone? How do, you, how do you do these things? How do you teach them from God's word if you're judging them? We're family. Now, let me ask you, are there ever any scuffles? That's a good word, right? Scuffles in your, in your home between brothers and sisters? Yes. I mean, I don't even know why a Nutella jar got thrown at my daughter the other day, but it happened. Why are there scuffles among you, right? Because you're brothers and sisters, and sometimes you're just going to wear the Jesus right off of somebody, right? <laughs> but do you love? Do you admonish? Do you care? Do you share? Do you serve? Yes. Why? Because you're family. And you've been brought in to the family of God, not by anything that you've done, not because you're good, but because of Jesus Christ and his work on our behalf. So you can't one another one another if you're never around one another. You can't one another one another if you're never around one another. You can't one another one another if you're not involved with one another. You can't one another one another if you just sit in a pew and don't talk to one another. So the church is more than a place that you just come once a week. A church is something that you belong to. It's a family. And we're to one another one another. I love how John puts it in 3 John 13 and 14. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Listen, as we were scrambling last year with live stream and what to do and quarantines and those things, as we came back, we made the decision that this, this is the gathering. And though online things are great supplements, great moments to stay involved while you have to be away, they can never replace the gathering body of believers who want another one another. It can never replace it. 
And so we want to stay the course because we believe that when we see each other face to face, we can mutually encourage one another in the faith and become stronger brothers and sisters in Christ. Tony Brita says this, why don't believers encourage one other believers? I suspect the main reason believers often fail to encourage one another is that we think we're too busy to do so. It could also be that we are often too self-absorbed to encourage other brothers and sisters. What keeps us what keeps us from encouraging one another? You know, I'm just too busy. I got a lot of things going on. I'm just not going to make it there. I'm just, just, I'm just too busy right now. Really? You know, I'm, I, I just, I don't feel like that's good for me right now. I'm just kind of, there's some things I'm working on in my life right now. And if I come to church, it's just going to kind of, uh, really? You're so self-absorbed right now that you can't see that there are brothers and sisters who desperately need you to carry their burdens with them? The church encourages one another by helping one another both physically and spiritually, and you do that face to face. A Christ-centered church family gathers in community. Let's cover one verse here, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Wow. Talk about a long-winded preacher, right? He preached till midnight. But what I want you to see is that on the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, the church here, you see a shift in the New Testament Christian worship that went from the Sabbath on Saturday to a gathering on Sunday. And the reason that shifted is because no, we know Paul, he still went to synagogues and he still went on the Sabbath day to, to give the gospel there. But the gathering body of believers were gathering on Sunday, the first day of the week, because it was the day of the resurrection. It was the Lord's day. And so every week when they gathered on the first day of the week, they gathered to remind themselves of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So why are we here today on a Sunday, the first day of the week? To, um, to remind ourselves that the grave is empty. Right? Talk about encouragement. When we remind ourselves weekly of the resurrection, we remind ourselves that death has been defeated, that sin no longer has dominion, that the payment of our sins has been accepted, and that we are citizens and saints of a holy kingdom that is far greater than any earthly kingdom. And so as we gather and as we see one another face to face, we're reminded that there is a resurrection life, that there is a kingdom of God that we are all brought into. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 says this, So, then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built up together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church is brought together, built up together with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone because we are fellow citizens and saints. Everett Ferguson says it this way, In assembly, the church becomes conscious of itself, confesses itself to be a distinct entity, shows itself to be what it is, a community, a people gathered by the grace of God dependent on Him and honoring Him. The assembly allows the church to emerge in its true nature. Wow, isn't that a beautiful thought? that when we gather together in community, we begin to get a glimpse 
of the spiritual reality of what the family of God is, what it means to be citizens and saints of a greater kingdom. It's a beautiful thought. I've said this illustration a couple of times. I don't know if you've heard it, but uh, I wanted to share it from here. It's kind of like Thanksgiving meal, and I read this in a book. How many of you are already looking forward to fall? Yeah, you've, you've probably already set out a couple of pumpkins. You might have even bought some pumpkin spice coffee already. I don't know. But you're already looking forward to fall, and you're already thinking about, you know, cooler weather, less humidity. Praise the Lord. We're looking forward to the, the leaves changing. We're looking forward to Thanksgiving meal. Turkey, ham, mashed potatoes. We're looking forward to macaroni and cheese, sweet potato casserole with a brown sugar topping. Don't give me any of those marshmallows, okay? Cranberry salad, deviled eggs, broccoli casserole, rolls, dessert, chest pie, apple pie, pecan pie. Some of y'all right now, you just went to a different place. You just, you left the body for a second. I don't know. You start thinking about Thanksgiving. You're like, I can't wait. And as he told this illustration, he said, you know what? I could sit and I could have all of that on my table and I could sit all by myself and I could eat all that food all by myself and I could get all the spirit, I could get all the nourishment from that food that I want and I could have my belly full. But if I was alone and I was not with my family, it wouldn't be Thanksgiving, would it? It just wouldn't be the same. Here's what he says about the gathering of the body. You can, you can read books. You can watch online. You can listen to podcasts. You can do all of those things, and you can fill your body with nourishment. You can have a full stomach. But if you're not gathering with the body, with the family, you're missing an essential part of what it means to be the church. On the first day of the week, see this verse? First day of the week, we gathered to break bread. This is a clear indication that they were celebrating the Lord's Supper every Sunday. And I'm going to be honest with you, I, I, I've known for years that there are denominations and there are churches that, that follow the Lord's Supper and, and partake in the Lord's Supper every single Sunday. And as I read this week and as I studied this week, I became, for lack of a better term, convicted the fact that we don't do it often enough. Why did they gather on the first day of the week to remember the resurrection? Why did they break bread and drink wine together on the first day of the week? Because they were remembering the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It was Christ-centered worship. It was a Christ-centered gathering. They weren't coming for self-help and, and betterment. They were coming to focus on Christ as the body of Christ. As they come together, 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 22. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the betterment, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I have those things underlined, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe in part that there must be fractions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, is it not the Lord's Supper that you eat? For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another one gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? 
What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. What Paul says to the church is, look, as you come together on the first day of the week, you come together to honor the Lord, to remember the sacrifice that was paid on your behalf. If you look there in verses 27 and through 29, he says, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So church, as we come together on the first day of the week, as we recognize that everything that has brought us into this place is is solely because of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, we're going to break bread together. And so I'm going to ask for you, and just in a moment of silence, before we tear off the first part here, for you to examine yourselves. And as you examine yourself, just close your eyes, pray, ask God to reveal to you any areas of your life that you need to confess, any areas you need to repent of, any any lifestyles that you know go against his will and his word. And remember that he paid the penalty on your behalf so that you could be adopted into the body of Christ, into the family of God. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Church, will you take that piece of bread? And as a body, as a family, will you partake together? Take and eat. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Will you take? Will you drink? Gracious Father, we thank you so much for the sacrifice that you paid on our behalf giving your Son, your one and only Son, your one and only eternally begotten Son, so that we could have life and have it everlasting. Father, forgive us when we stray. Forgive us when we chase after lesser things. Forgive us when we don't remember the payment that was made on our behalf. Jesus, we thank you for the ultimate sacrifice. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The early church gathered around two gospel imperatives. Gospel proclaiming, he says this in 1 Corinthians, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the church gathered on the first day of the week to proclaim the gospel. They proclaimed the good news. They were a gospel proclaiming people. And being a gospel proclaiming people made them gospel people. On the seventh day, On the first day of the week, verse 7, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them. They were a gospel people because they were 
getting into the, the scriptures, into the gospel. They were listening to the preaching that was going on. A gospel people are shaped by gospel proclamation. First Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy and he says this in chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and the hearers. A Christ-centered church devotes itself to the public reading of Scripture. It does so because the public reading of Scripture, the public proclamation of the gospel, has the power to save souls. Have you ever wondered why there's such opposition and criticism and apathy towards gathering on Sunday? You ever wondered why? Why it's so difficult sometimes? Is it not that it is the visible reminder to the world that Jesus is Lord and that we are part of him and we are part of something much larger than ourselves? Why wouldn't Satan attack that? Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Thirdly, last thing, the Christ-centered church family gathers under scriptural authority. Gathers under scriptural authority. This is a great story here. There was many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sang into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, bent over him, and taking him in his arms, he said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. Listen to that. Paul, he's preaching, and he's so long-winded that a young man named Eutychus falls asleep, falls out the window, and dies. I've heard pastors say, Eutychus, too, if I preach that long. Eutychus, too, if you fell out a window, right? Like, these are ways to remember his name. So, this is, this is, this is remarkable. Paul, the one who wrote 13 books of the New Testament, who's so full of the Spirit, he's He's proclaiming the gospel for hours until midnight. And then after the boy's resurrected or raised back to life, he goes back upstairs and talks until morning about the gospel. You can be the best preacher in the world. People still fall asleep on you. That's what that means. But really, Eutychus is an illustration of how God raises dead sinners to spiritual life. Because whether we like to admit it or not, the gospel and the word of God has the authority to save sinners. This is why we proclaim the word of Christ. Because there are always those who sit under scriptural teaching that are still spiritually sleeping. There are those who sit week after week at a church service who may have a knowledge, who may have, may have been raised in the church, who desperately need 
to be awoken to the fact that there is a loving God who sent his son Jesus Christ. And it is a personal salvation that is corporately lived out. He represents the one who needed to hear. Romans 10, 17 says, So by faith, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. This word faith, the Greek word pistis, means belief, trust, or confidence in someone or something. It's not simply a physical receiving of sounds to the ear. A lot of times we sit in and we hear the proclamation of the gospel, we hear the preaching of God's word, and it is just sounds to the eardrums. But we need the word of God to penetrate into our hearts, to save us, to take us from death to life. Many in the church have heard the gospel because they are physically present in the church, but they have never received in faith and remain spiritually dead like Eutychus. 1 Corinthians 1, 17 through 18. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. A Christ-centered worship is Christ-centered in Scripture because Scripture has the power to save sinners. Why do we preach the gospel in a Christ-centered gathering and not moral conformity and spiritual self-embetterment? Because it's by hearing the word of Christ that the perishing are saved by the power of God. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. As we gather today, we gather as a body, as a family, and to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to respond in worship. And as we respond, I would ask that you would respond, and however God is leading you to respond, it might be repentance. It might be praying. It might be standing and singing. It might be just encouraging those around you, having relationships and conversations with those that you need to share with and serve. But you're not alone. You're not alone. You're in a family. And you've been adopted. And it was very costly. And it is legally binding. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your church. We thank you that you've called us into fellowship. You've called us into community. You've called us into a family. That you've done this on all, all based on your son's work on our behalf. Father, today as we respond to your word, let us respond with joy and thanksgiving. Let us respond with encouragement. Let us respond with love and hope. Let us build one another up in the faith. Father, we thank you for the time that we've had together in corporate worship. Lord, help us to be Christ-centered, Christ-focused, Christ-exalting. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Will you stand? Will you respond?